Welcome back to the Charlotte Angel Connection, the Charlotte area podcast linking entrepreneurs, investors, and the broader Charlotte community. As you know, our goal here is to interview the individuals who are building, shaping, and influencing entrepreneurship in the Charlotte region so you can stay invested in Charlotte's growth. Today, we welcome back somebody who absolutely embodies those characteristics of building, shaping, and influencing entrepreneurship. We welcome back Alan Fitzpatrick, co-founder and CEO of Open Broadband. For our longtime listeners, you'll remember that Alan was on the podcast back in 2018, episodes 35 and 36. At that point in time, we talked to Alan about a relatively new open broadband where they were moving into rural communities and providing internet uh, to customers at speeds that they couldn't get anywhere else. Fast forward today, that landscape has changed. Um, Spending has passed through Congress um, and has been approved to support broadband in those same communities to the tune of $42 billion, which means that there is a greater demand or greater opportunity, which brings in bigger players into that space. So we talked to Alan for a while about how they view that opportunity Um, how they try to capitalize on it, what constraints it has, how they view those constraints. Um, We talk a lot about where they've been, where they are, and where they want to go, how they think about growth from a company perspective and a founder perspective, um, how they manage the remote aspect of their employee base. They've always been a remote company. So lots packaged into this podcast with long-time supporter of the Charlotte entrepreneurial ecosystem, Alan Fitzpatrick. And I think you'll thoroughly enjoy today's episode. Alan, welcome back to the podcast, man. We're super excited to, um, to hear the update on, on you and open broadband from our first podcast, maybe five years ago. Yeah, that's right. Thanks, William. I've, I've been a fan of your uh, show for a long, long time, including being on it before. So it's a, a pleasure to be on it again. And uh, let's get this episode started. Yeah, no, let's not say long, long time. That makes both of us sound a little more <laughs> mature than maybe we want to be, right? Well, I've uh, enjoyed uh, listening to the other sessions you have. I always learn from them. So I like to hear from other founders. So uh, I, I do go back to some of your podcasts from time to time. So thank yeah. you for doing that. Yeah, no, so absolutely. We enjoy it. So um, it's fun to talk to entrepreneurs. Uh, it's beneficial for us. And I know it's beneficial for other entrepreneurs as well. So. I feel like all 2.6 million people in the greater Charlotte metro area know Alan. Um, but for the one or two that might not, can you give us a little 60-second commercial on you and um, and Open Broadband, the company? Sure. I, I'm sure there's more than one or two that don't know me, but <laughs> thank you very much for that. Uh, I have been very involved in the entrepreneurship scene in Charlotte for quite a while. So people probably know me from different uh, different aspects. Uh, I've started three different companies, started uh, a co-founded two different software companies, and then co-founded my current company, Open Broadband, which is an ISP, we'll be talking about today. Uh, I've also been a participant in most of the startup events uh, over the past dozen years or so from, you know, Packer Place and pitch breakfast sessions to angel meetings and, and those types of things around the city. And I've taught uh, universities. I've taught entrepreneurship classes at Johnson & Wales in Charlotte, as well as uh, online at Central Michigan. So uh, very much in tune with entrepreneurship uh, from different levels. Um, 
it, it's been interesting. The more successful you are as an entrepreneur, the less time you have to spend in those events. And what I have found over the past few years is people probably haven't seen me as much the past three or four years, simply because open broadband has been uh, so busy and, and so active. Uh, so just recently, I've started to poke my head up a little bit and get involved, uh, like the Charlotte Innovation Week. Uh, that was just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I actually went to a few events because I wanted to kind of poke my head up and be visible again. But uh, it's, it's nice to be on your show and happy to provide an update of our, you know, our business at Open Broadband and what we're doing. Yeah, no, let's. Um, so let's go back. Our last podcast, believe it or not, was 2018. So I'm truly almost five years ago. I want to say it was in the fall of 18 when we did our podcast on uh, episodes 35 and 36. Um, so um, that was back when we recorded two different podcasts for um, to break it apart before we realized that people could hit pause whenever they wanted to. So um, we learned a little That's bit. It's been a while. So, uh, yeah, we're in year seven now yeah. as a company. So, so, you know, when you look when you look at startups, you always uh, know that so many are going to fail in the first three years. Uh, and if you get past that point, you're, you've got some sticking ability. So we're pr proud to say we're in year seven. So as I say, give us that update from 2018 to two. I mean, gosh, no, not only has a lot changed with open broadband over the course of the last couple of years, a couple of things have changed across our country and the globe over the course of the last five years. So uh, where's the where's the business today? Sure. So uh, our initial thesis was uh, people in remote areas were underserved with broadband. That was based on a lot of data at the time. If uh, you lived in a rural community in particular, uh, the big ISPs didn't really want to make investments there. So our thesis was if we could go into those areas with a better internet service than what currently existed, we could make people aware of it and we can make money on it, that we would be successful. So that was our, that was our thesis. And uh, fortunately for us, things worked out exactly um, along those lines. So we started going out of North Carolina to primarily rural areas, offering much better internet service than what existed and customers just signed right up. So we expanded our network uh, rapidly over the past few years. So the Charlotte Business Journal has a Fast 50 ranking where they rank the fastest growing uh, private companies so from 2018 to 2020, which was sort of the first time period where we qualified, we'd been in business long enough to actually apply. Uh, we were one of the winners. We were number 12 uh, that year. And then from the years 19 to 21, uh, we were number 16. And then the years 20 to 22, which of course just ended recently, uh, we will be on the list, but we won't know the results until this fall. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so from a business perspective, uh, we've done quite well. Um, CBJ also announced us as their on fire award winner uh, for last year, which was nice. Uh, we've gone from you know starting off with two co-founders to twenty five employees. Oh, wow, that's yeah. amazing, Alan! Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it's nice to create jobs as well as you know getting customers and making money. And we're in four states now, so North uh, and South Carolina, Virginia, and Florida. Okay. I think when we spoke, you were in North Carolina and Virginia, um, maybe had made a step into South Carolina at that point in time, but very small if you'd done it at all. Um, what's um so the thesis was going into small rural areas of would provide revenue and for any person um running a business, revenue is a is a positive thing. What's the business like today? 
So our mission has not changed. Our mission has always been providing broadband to underserved areas. Uh, a couple of things have changed. Uh, one thing was a learning experience on our side is it's not just folks in the rural areas that are underserved. There are underserved people in the urban areas too. And the definition of underserved might be more from an affordability standpoint where people don't have you know, an affordable internet option uh, that will meet their needs. Maybe they have access, you know, they, they could purchase something that's just too expensive for them. So that was a big learning for us over time as some of the underserved are actually in urban areas. So it kind of broadened our, our model. Uh, the second thing is when we were first starting, we deliberately went to areas that competition was weak. We went to areas that the big ISPs didn't want to make investments in. So we had very little competition in those areas. Uh, we did try to get some government grants. We would talk to towns and counties and try to pick up $10,000 here, $20,000 there, account here or there to be an anchor for us in a new market. And that was enough to kind of justify our market entry. So we could get by and do a lot with very little. Well, one of the big things that's changed is Ever since COVID happened, everybody recognizes how important and how critical internet is for everyone. And the government is putting a lot of money behind it. So there's uh, some BEAD grants, B-E-A-D, uh, coming down for broadband that are nationwide. And there's $42 billion coming from the Fed to the states. And that's billion with a B. <laughs> So what happens when you start tossing out $42 billion? Do you think that this uh, low com competition market is going to stay that way? No. Probably not. So uh, big money attracts big fish. So uh, one of the things that uh, we're seeing is the areas that we had traditionally gone into with very low competition, with a superior offering, you know, a very easy go-to-market strategy is now being met with you know, millions of dollars being offered to a large ISP who then will take the money and be happy to build it. So there's sort of two sides of that coin. One side of it is positive for us. We could go after our share of that, that kind of money. And, and we have won uh, some pretty substantial grants. The downside is so can the other ISPs, and then they can essentially lock us out of a market that we normally would have gone into. So uh, it's interesting as an entrepreneur, you start off your, your company with a particular competitive landscape and your go-to-market approach, but that whole competitive landscape can change, like what we're seeing with all the federal grants. And you just have to be ready to make adjustments to that environment. And anytime there's a big change like that, it's also full of opportunity, like we were chatting about earlier. Yeah. So um, no change, um, you know, change absolutely um crazy opportunity i watch um we have a thing in my house uh, my daughter and i are, are usually home on wednesday nights while my son and um, wife are at his soccer practice and we call it wicked wednesday because we watch wicked tuna on wednesday nights right um and you oftentimes hear the fishermen talk about the change in the tide um because that's when you'll get the change in feeding patterns and stuff like that with fish and when that happens you're more likely to catch fish right so um you know, change in tides or change in business um, tides um, create opportunity for entrepreneurs who are willing to stick their head in there. Absolutely. So we're right in the, the mix of that now. So uh, our business model is still to serve the underserved. 
But the technology that we're using, we're starting to pitch much more fiber optics. Uh, we started off being uh, really all fixed wireless technology. So our technology mix has changed. Our go-to-market approach with some of the grants has changed. Uh, so it's a good opportunity. It's just a change. You got to be ready for it. Yeah. One of the things that you and I talked about towards the end of our first podcast, I mean, again, we did two separate kind of recordings back then. Um, you got into perseverance, right? Um, and we talked about the the need for that as an entrepreneur um, with the the changing landscape and the changing dynamics in the business environment over the course of the last five years. What's what I know what your view is, but what's your view now on perseverance? Well, you, you have to be aware of the situation. So uh, situational awareness is obviously yeah. a big step. Uh, and you have to pick your battles. So you don't want to persevere with a losing hand. So you need to make sure that you are adjusting to what's going to work in the, in the new landscape. Uh, so I'm a fighter, not a flighter, if you will. Yeah. So when things get tough, you know, you take off the gloves and you get in the boxing mat, the boxing ring and, and you fight. Yeah. Uh, so that's been uh, my approach. Um, but as entrepreneurs all have to go through the same cycle and you start off, everything is new. Everything is growth. And I was even kind of thinking back over the past few years, and we were signing all new contracts with counties and, and customers and three-year contracts and five-year contracts and stuff. And at the time, you didn't really think about what happens when those contracts end because they're all new, right? Yeah. But three, three and five years later, it's like, oh, yeah, these contracts are expiring. And now you got to renew them. You got to fight to renew them. They're not just handed to you. And then, you know, you Terms and conditions may change when you renew a contract. So you get much more into that uh, you know, competitive uh, fight mode. And, and you got to persevere through that. And you don't win everything. So when some doors are closed to you, you have to look for other doors that can open up. Yeah. So talk. let's dive into the company makeup for a second. So, um, I mean, we talked a couple of years ago, I think, Alan, that you and Kent were probably doing some installs. Um, and I would imagine with 25 employees, that's changed. But what's the nature, like how's the, um, what's the makeup of the business at the moment, right? So we operate in four states, as I mentioned uh, before, yeah. Virginia, North and South Carolina and Florida. We have uh, people in every state. So the nature of our business is such that Yes, you can work remotely, but you still got to have people in those areas. So if you think of it like a satellite TV, a dish TV, direct TV, or somebody physically goes to your house and installs this antenna on your roof, we have to have resources in the local markets to do that. So we have 25 employees, but we're spread out over four states. Yeah. Uh, so we don't have a centralized office. So we've always been a company that from day one, learned how to be remote. So the whole COVID thing from a standpoint of how we run our company didn't impact us at all. It drove sales actually, but uh, as far as how we operated, because we were already distant from each other. We were used to using chat tools all the time, Zoom and, and Google Chat, Google Meet. And that was sort of our culture was being able to work remotely. And so we're still that way. Uh, we still hire people. We hire people I've never met. 
in person, right? <laughs> because they're hired locally in the market and I'm not going to fly down uh, to Florida and go interview them necessarily. I let the local manager kind of manage that process. But uh, you, you mentioned Kent and I doing installations in the early days. We don't do the installations anymore. We, we are very hands-on, but we're not quite that hands-on. Yeah. But it, it is interesting to have to, you know, get out of the weeds and let people do their jobs and not micromanage and not try to be overbearing when you were, when you were a founder and you're used to doing everything yourself. So that's a, a, probably a challenge that I, I always face is trying to make sure I back off at the right times to let people do their jobs, you know, give people the skills and the tools they need and then not try to do it for them. Yeah. How, um, how easy do you find itself to continue to elevate yourself as the business grows, right? In other words, elevate yourself more as an executive type person, right? Internally, it's been a pretty smooth process because generally speaking, the people on the team, they want that responsibility and they want to take over those. So that's been a fairly smooth uh, process. The more challenge, challenging time for me has been the external. So in the early days, I mean, I was the lead salesperson. So I would be that person who was talking to the county manager or whatever, or a large customer or university perhaps. Well, they haven't forgotten that. So they'll come back to me like directly with anything. It's like, well, I, I can't be your customer service person anymore. I'm not your salesperson. So I need you to talk to our salesperson now or our customer care. Or I need you to open up a trouble ticket because you can't just like text me and, you know, on a Saturday afternoon and I'm going to pick up my cell phone and be responsive. I try, you know, I try yeah. and I'll get it in the right spot. But uh, the, the hardest part has been getting those external contacts to kind of go through more of this process and the systems with a larger company when they were used to dealing with us as a small company. Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense. Uh, you, one of the things that we talked about in 2018 was revenue and profit um, and how y'all kind of focused in on that from the very early stages of it. Um, I would imagine that's probably still true. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, What's um, so is I mean, y'all still look at it like a traditional business does like we we want revenue, we want profit, we want to be paid. Um, we're going to grow the business that way. Is that still true? It is. Uh, we have a uh, small amount of funding that we raise from angel investors who are fantastic. I love our angel investor group. But in the grand scheme of things, it's not that much money. So we've yeah. had to do a lot with customer revenue. So customer investment money is the best money to get, right? That's what we, that's what we teach all the startups. So yeah, we're very focused on, you know, how much revenue we're bringing in, what's our margin, you know, on, on service and so forth. But there's always that pull of how fast do you grow versus how much do you focus on profitability? Well, gee, if we weren't going to grow very fast, we could be really profitable. We just quit spending money on this, this, and this, and we don't need these extra people. But if your focus is doubling your business year over year, you want 100% growth, you, you can't be focused on profitability. You, you need to make ends meet, mm -hmm. but maximizing your bottom line isn't the same objective when you're trying to double your business. Because you need to pre-hire, you need to get talent in the door before you've got the revenue to pay for them. Yeah, uh, you might need to put. Uh, in our case, we have network that has to be put in place. So it's capital expenditures 
that you have to put in place in order to get that future revenue. Well, if you were just focused on pure profitability for that quarter or that year, you, you wouldn't spend that money, right? Because the the potential return is too far in the future. Yeah. So for us, we're still focused on that you know year over year growth, uh, trying to maintain that high growth trajectory. But at the same time, making sure that we're not losing money and we can pay the bills, keep the lights on and keep hiring people. So you raised money, if I remember correctly, um, and I cheated. So I listened to our podcast. You raised money from some um, some some investors in Winston-Salem at an event way back in 2018, I believe. Is that still primarily your only fundraise so far? Uh, we have gotten a group of 13 angel investors over time. And yes, okay. that was one of the first ones was that yeah. Winston Salem. So never discount the opportunity as a startup to go pitch at an event because you yeah. never know what's going to happen. Believe it or not, we only paid $25 to have an exhibit table at this Winston Salem event. And we yeah. met, you know, one guy and it just like led to two other guys. And you, you never know. Uh, but we also had some additional angel investors in Charlotte, uh, we ended up doing three rounds, very small rounds. I mean, in total, we raised less than a million dollars. Yeah. But uh, what happened was the original investors were really enthusiastic about what we were doing and they were seeing the growth and that we could execute on the vision. And then that attracted more people. So we started actually getting a wait list of people that wanted to invest in us, which was nice. Yeah, absolutely. So, <laughs> um, tell that to founders, right? So. Um, a wait list of potential investors is a good thing. It is a good thing. But then, as, you know, as an owner, it's like, oh, how much do you want to dilute your your equity? Yeah. Once you have enough money to get where you want to get to, you kind of stop fundraising at that point. Or if you can make your uh, fundraising from customers or from grants, well, that's a much better way than getting investment dollars. Yeah. The... The 40, is it 44 or is it 42 billion? 42 billion from yeah. the BEAT grants coming down. Yeah. So the 42 billion in BEAT grants, does that, um, do you want to run towards that as hard as you can? Or does it not change the way you want to try to, how do y'all, how do y'all view that from a company growth perspective um, and how you want to execute your vision and your mission within the context of you know of those numbers that are dangling out there excellent question uh, on the surface one might hear a number like that and say well you should get as much of that as you possibly can right it's a once in a lifetime flood of money coming from the government to go solve the very problem that our company was built to go solve because our mission is to go solve that problem the challenge becomes the rules of the program so on, on the surface, this is not just a giveaway of money. When, when you get down into the actual grant requirements, there are things like you have to have 25% uh, uh, bonded uh, of the amount. Uh, you also have another 25% that you have to contribute. So let's take a round number. Say it's a $10 million grant. We would have to have two and a half million bonded through a bank, which is going to require us to actually have two and a half million of deposits that are going to sit there not being used. And then our contribution is 25%. So that's another two and a half million that we're going to have to come up with for cash for the project. The grant ends up being five million out of 10. Now, is that a good opportunity or not? Yeah. 
Maybe, maybe not. Uh, the rules are written by Congress, and to some extent, the NTIA uh, Telecommunications uh, Association is uh, administering this and kind of setting the rules. And the states are having some opportunity to uh, to define some of the rules as well, which is actually a good thing. But uh, sometimes when people are looking at administering programs like this, they're very concerned about fraud. They're very concerned about you know companies not being able to deliver. So they start putting in requirements like you have to have five years worth of audited financials. Well, <laughs> we're, we're in year seven as a company, so we could do it, right? We've, we have five years of financials. Are they audited? Well, we've never paid to have them audited. <laughs> yeah. You know, auditing financials is like 10 grand a year. Yep. Or it's not in, an insignificant cost for a, a young company that's actually just trying to spend all their money growing the business. And then all the time that's involved in, in going through that process of being audited and sitting down with the auditors and pulling up records and, and going through all that. Uh, so there are some requirements that are going into place that prevent us from just going nuts on these grants. So it's not like we can go after you know a billion dollars of grants ourselves. These other limitations are going to prevent us. We're only a small company. Yeah. So we, we can't meet all those. But we don't want to let the opportunity go by either. So it gets back to what we were touching upon earlier. A different landscape can bring about opportunities. Maybe we're not always that front player for the grant. Maybe we can't meet those front end requirements, but we can certainly operate and build a network under somebody else's umbrellas. So is this a time for us to do more of a partnership with a larger entity that has the financial wherewithal to be that front player and, and we're something else? So that's one of the different models we're considering right now. So had y'all had y'all given that any consideration prior to the um, the rules and regulations tied to the grant where y'all go in and do some of the quote unquote groundwork for a bigger player as the uh, or have the dollars that are dangling out there and the rules and regulations that go with them? Is that kind of the catalyst for saying, hey, wait a second, here's a way for us to win without kind of falling you know, through a trap door of getting too tied into all this stuff? You're right. It has been the catalyst. So we had thought of the opportunities for partnerships uh, before. So there are different go-to-market models for doing what we do, getting broadband deployed. Uh, we've really only given it some, you know, cursory uh, thought because we still have the uh, forbearance to, you know, go ahead and, and get the grants ourselves. But with this amount of money with the rules being in place has forced us to kind of go back and, and give stronger consideration to a model like that. Yeah. Um, when was the bead program passed, Alan? Oh, gosh. Uh, was it 21? Legislation was passed at least in 22. It was 22. Okay. Yeah. So now, money that, hasn't come out yet. So. Okay. Also, oh, it's still kind of funneling through the system. Right. Um, so, I mean, at that point in time, y'all had four or five years worth of experience um so with kind of going into these communities and executing on the ground where a lot of the bigger players had stayed away from it does does that open their eyes quickly to somebody like y'all that have been on the ground executing this as you know, a potential um acquisition target or 
do they reach out to y'all for partners? And I mean, obviously you're exploring partnerships. I don't know if how the relations, but but how is um how is the fact that y'all were ahead of everybody else in this play to y'all's benefit as it starts to come through, right? Like how are you looking at the opportunity from that mindset? It's more of a mixed bag than I would like. <laughs> oh, the, curse of, right? the curse of an entrepreneur, right? It's never all good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, on one hand, it's exactly like you said. We we have experience in the market. We have experience with the uh, environment and the technology. We have a base of customers. You know, we are we are established, and we just need help to grow. Uh, on the downside, uh, with the government money coming out, the big carriers may not even need us if they could get you know four, five, six million dollars for a grant. They'll just overbuild us. You know, why would they want to buy us? They could just use the government grant to overbuild us. So uh, not real happy with that element of the uh, the plan. Uh, a second thing is there's a lot of uh, people that have strong feelings about technology that should be deployed. Uh, whereas we had always focused our business on what the service aspects were. And and by that, I'll, I'll get in more detail. We provided a lot of fixed wireless technology, and it was designed to meet speed requirements. When we started our business, the speeds in the rural areas were very anemic. A lot of people still had DSL getting like two and three megabit service or Viasat satellite. It, it was really bad. But the FCC definition of broadband at the time was 25 megabits by three megabits. Sounds pretty low, right, for those of us in Charlotte. But in the rural areas, that was a huge improvement over what they had. So we could go out to these areas and offer 25 and 50 megabit fixed wireless service. And we were 10 to 20 times better than anything else at, at basically the same price. So it was a very, very good at the market for us. With all this money coming down the pike, people are now, and, and people being a lot of the administrator, grant administrators and uh, offices are thinking, let's do fiber to the home. Let's do the Google Fiber model for everybody. And the minimum is going to be 100 meg service, and maybe it's 100 megabit symmetrical up and down. Okay, that, that becomes a little bit more difficult for the technology choice that we had rolled out. So back to your question, would we be a good acquisition target if we're providing 25 by 3 service when the new requirement's 100 by 100? We would have to upgrade all of our equipment. Yeah. So an interesting angle back on the pro side of this next bag is we could potentially go out and get grants to overbuild ourselves. So areas where we're offering 25, 50 megabit service, we get a grant, we put in fiber and we change our customers over to the fiber network. Yeah. So that's on the plus side. And you've got the relationships already in place too, right? So it's easier to convert an existing relationship than it is to convert a new relationship, right? You've got the warm, you've done well so far. So let's go, um, let's go with the guy we know. Right. Now, from a revenue perspective, the customer is already a customer. So it's not like we're going to be able to charge them a whole lot more by this transition. So we could potentially be in a position where we're spending a lot of time and energy and effort swapping out technology for customers we already have which isn't driving that you know doubling year over year of the, of the business if we do that yeah so compresses margins makes it more difficult 
um, puts your focus on existing rather than the future. So it kind of puts all kinds of constraints on the business model, right? So, so but like like you were saying earlier, every time there's change, there's opportunity. Yeah. So things in our our model have to change. You know, obviously we're not even really pushing 25 by three service anymore, even in the rural markets. We're we're really trying to go up level. All the latest technology we've been deploying has been, you know, capable of 100 megabit speed. Uh, and we have our first fiber to the home project, which we didn't, we weren't even thinking about back in 2018. And we're doing the one now. Just fell in your lap, just as an opportunity that you saw and you went after it. Yeah, it was another grant opportunity. Yeah. And it was clear that they wanted fiber. So we said, okay, we're going to bite the bullet and we're going to uh, bid on a project with different technology than. Uh, what we traditionally offered. Now, most of us all came from the telecom industry. So we've, we're all used to uh, deal, working with fiber. We just hadn't been using that as our main technology at open broadband. So, uh, Alan, this is your third startup, right? It is. Yeah, the first two were software. So what's different? What have you learned differently that, and you learned every day anyways, right? But what's this taught you about kind of a product-based rather than a software-based um, startup, right? Right. Uh, the, one of the best things is since you're, we're offering more of a physical installed product, it's very sticky. It's, it's you know, if you're uh, selling software, it's easy for somebody just to change or, and stop their subscription and move in a heartbeat or somebody else to come along. When you're delivering something physically to somebody's home, it's a lot harder to change. So uh, it, it's a good uh, sticky product. Uh, it sells itself. I mean, who doesn't need internet? With anything that you want to do today, it's requiring more and more internet uh, speed. So the, the wind is kind of behind our backs on the whole drive for, uh, for better broadband. It doesn't scale as easily as like a software as a service. So... Uh, one of the challenges for us is trying to serve everyone we'd like to serve. Somebody would say, hey, I have terrible internet at my cabin, you know, in the mountains, and I really want service. It's like, well, unfortunately, you're not in our service area, and we can't spend tens of thousands of dollars to try to build just for you. Yeah. Whereas a software company, like the, the previous two that I uh, co-founded, you could basically sell to anybody on the internet anywhere. As long so, as you can, as long as you can access the internet or hit download, we um, we will deliver to you, right? Right. So, so, so there are a lot of pros to a physically based service like we're offering now, uh, but scalability is not one of them. <laughs> scalability is tough, but yeah. that's also providing that barrier. You know, there there aren't many competitors where we're going, and that barrier is there because it costs money to go build out the infrastructure. And it costs time, right? Um, and time causes, as you've highlighted already, time causes natural disruptions. And those natural disruptions are more difficult to predict. Um, and therefore, uh, you know, some folks wouldn't walk into it because it just make, even though software takes 10 years to build out too. But anyways, um, physical products, because they don't scale as fast, in theory, take longer, right? Right. I do like the fact that uh, the internet business is the monthly recurring model. So similar to SaaS, similar to the other software companies I had, you get that monthly recurring revenue. So you don't have to like start from zero on the first of every month and you're trying to sell, you know, new widgets every month. Uh, 
yes, we're trying to add more customers every month, but you have that base of business from the previous month that, you know, unless they cancel service, uh, they're continuing their subscription. So you get that benefit of like a SaaS, but it costs you money to put it in. And once you're in, you have some barrier to, to competition. Yeah. When we talked a couple of years ago, you you mentioned that almost from day one that Kenton, you weren't focused on the exit, but were aware that one day there'd be an exit. And so you you kind of built towards that as a goal, right? And so one of the examples you gave was there's no reason for y'all to set up a um a small um uh company in Colorado because it spreads you too thin. If you stayed more regional, it makes you an, an easier acquisition target. Um, how do y'all, so, I mean, so now seven years in, five years from our last podcast, like, how do y'all continue to readjust your thinking on exit and selling the business? And how, do you review it quarterly? Do you review it biannually? Do you review it every morning at coffee? What's the push y'all's process? <laughs> uh, probably more in the earlier part of uh, what you just uh, described. So, uh, yes, we do think more about exits now. Uh, a large part of that, uh, I guess we're older and then the company is more mature, but also we're getting to the point that if we really want to go after a lot of these grants uh, that I mentioned that require, you know, uh, uh, co-funding uh, percentage, we're going to need more money. In order to get more money, we need to raise more funds. And if you go raise money, everybody's going to want to know what their exit plan is going to be. Yep. So that's forced us to uh, re-engage in that end of the conversation. So I would say uh, almost monthly, between monthly and quarterly, we're talking about it. Uh, we do have a board in place uh, that we didn't in the early days. It was just Kent and I. So uh, with the board, it's it's always, you know, what funds are we going to need? How do we raise the funds? You know, what is our exit plan? Uh, what's the valuation going to be under different scenarios? Uh, technology choice has an impact on valuation. Uh, fiber networks tend to have a higher valuation than wireless networks, for example. So that uh, is also you, part of our conversation. That a little bit because you own the infrastructure, it's more difficult to put in. So therefore, somebody's willing to pay the premium for it. Exactly. Yeah. So you mentioned board. I always love talking about boards. Um, when did you form the board? Uh, we did probably 2020. Okay. I, I don't remember the exact date. That's a good That's question. No. We're probably about three years then. Okay. What's, um, what was the catalyst? By, I mean, um, mature companies that want to act like a company um, uh, have boards. Was that it? Or was it you were really looking for strategic feedback from interested? What was the catalyst behind the board? So in the first couple of years, it was still very thesis based. You know, we, we had a thesis, we could go into a market, we could make money, get customers, be profitable and so forth. And, and we did several different markets. But then we got to the point of how do we grow from here? We're going to need to have access to, uh, to capital. We, and we went back to the angels and got another round at the time. Then uh, we got a line of credit. So uh, when you start to go to outside institutions, they're going to want to see a board. So the line of credit was kind of one of those things that uh, led to us having a board. Uh, 
We also found that one member of our investor group in particular was just really interested in what we were doing. And they're all interested, but uh, he just I was interested above and beyond everybody else and was always just very helpful and supportive and offering advice and connections. And it was like, you know, you're adding so much value just as an independent investor. You know, why don't we formalize this and actually have you on the board? Uh, so, yeah, it was, it was about three years in. I think we had crossed the million dollar mark on revenue. So, you know, we had to get a line of credit established. So, we, you know, we're kind of like a real entity that needed to have more formality. Uh, one thing I learned along the way is when you start off as just a couple of individuals, a couple of co-founders, and you're an LLC, people don't give you the same respect. If you're a corporation or you have a board, then suddenly you're much more substantial. You're viewed as, oh, you're a real company. Whereas like any two guys or gals can go start up a company being LLC. Yeah. But oh, you got a board. Oh, you're a corporation. Oh, okay. You're real. Yeah. So there is something to be said for that. No, you're right. So did y'all flip from an LLC to a C Corp then? Uh, not yet. That part not we yet. called off on. Although just this week I was asked by one of our investors, hey, when are you guys going to convert? Yeah. Um, uh, still going after the 1202. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, it becomes more of a tax treatment thing at some point. Yeah. I, I have been sort of um, not happy with how the LLC doesn't completely veil the founders. I mean, everything you kind of learn, and I used to teach entrepreneurship at Johnson and Wales. You form an entity is supposed to protect the individual from the business and, and separation of, of business and personal, which it does for the most part. But anytime anybody wants something from the company, they go straight after Kent and I. I don't care if it's an LLC. They'll, they'll name us personally. Or if you try to raise money, good luck raising money for the company. You better be prepared as a founder to write your name on the signature block. You personally have to pay it back. Yeah. So it was sort of disappointing to me that the LLC structure didn't kind of isolate us from that. Whereas if you have a, and eventually we may switch to a corporation where you, you have a corporation, you have a board, it's not individuals. It's not what Alan thinks or what Kent thinks. It's what open, open broadband is executing on. Right. Yeah. Um, so uh, in light of the next couple of years, Alan, um, think with me for a second, what, um, in an ideal world, what does open broadband look like three years from now? So the mission that we're on of serving the underserved with broadband is still going to be there three years from now. It's probably still going to be there five years, 10 years from now. So I don't think our mission has changed at all. So our focus is going to be continuing to grow to fulfill that mission. How do we get broadband to more people in need? faster and over a wider area. Uh, internally, we've talked about being a Southeastern company. So if you took a look at the map and said, okay, Virginia to Florida to Alabama, maybe you know as North as Tennessee, uh, and being an internet provider you know, option uh, for people, particularly focused on the underserved is kind of where we wanna be. We have such a minute market share that easily the next three years, the next five years, the next 10 years, we could focus just on those markets and underserved and be as busy as we could possibly be. So our plan is just to continue to grow as fast as we can to fulfill our mission, uh, to uh, 
you know, make sure we're profitable along the way, that we're building a solid network that's going to have value and has an exit multiple uh, that's going to be of interest. And uh, at the end of the day, all the financials aside, all the customer acquisition aside, I always come back to the S in the acronym ISP. S is service, it's internet service provider. At the end of the day, we're providing service to people. And if the service doesn't work, they yell at us. <laughs> if the service is good, they're very happy. Yeah. If you go to our Google reviews, by the way, we're 4.7 or 4.8. So we get really good reviews. But we focus totally on service. Uh, we view that as one of the competitive advantages. Because if you think of your internet provider today, generally having a high service level is not one of the things you would give them credit for, right? The internet industry has a terrible... Uh, reputation for service. I think Comcast was ranked like worst customer service in the country for years, several years in a row. No it offense should, to my Comcast friends. It should still be. Yes, it's tough. But, uh, and, and nobody's perfect. I mean, we have yeah. our faults and there's probably a couple bad reviews on us on Google. But uh, we, we really try to do the best service possible. So when you ask me that question of where we want to be in three years, uh, Along with that growth and fulfilling our mission, I, I still want to be viewed as an utmost service provider, that we're one of the companies you'd like to do business with because we work so hard to get good service to you. Is that, um, does that come from your days as uh, your your previous two companies, Software Right, is constantly thinking about service? Is that where that kind of comes from, Alan, you think? Uh, yeah, part of that. And uh, you may remember it. I was at the DC 74 data center in Charlotte and uh what do you want your data center to be? You want it to basically be invisible. Yeah. You don't want to hear from your data. You don't want anything to go down ever, right? There's always power and bandwidth and your servers are always online and nothing ever goes down at your data center. So yeah, I've, I've kind of come up from that world where service quality was paramount. Yeah. So it's not for us just about making money or, or getting customers. Yes, we have to do that, but we have to be that ultimate service provider. Yeah. So um, as we kind of come up on the end of the podcast, again, crazy enough to think that we've almost circled through 50 minutes here. Um, you've mentioned it a couple of times that you've been a teacher of entrepreneurship. Um, and um, and then you've secondarily mentioned a couple of times that um, you've learned a couple of things along the way this time. Right. So as as the teacher here for a second, what what have you learned on this go round that um, that's beneficial for future entrepreneurs to think about? Right, right. I do try to uh, draw upon my uh, my practitioner side whenever yeah. I'm teaching. And in fact, uh, one of the pieces of feedback I got from uh, this last semester was they loved it when I got into stories. I would tell them stories about things we experienced. They like that actually better than me teaching the content. <laughs> the content they could read online or whatever. But then I would tell them a real life story of how it worked. Yeah. They were like fascinated by it. Uh, things that might seem a little mundane when you're teaching it, like uh, you have to have uh, confidentiality agreements with like employees and contractors and so forth. That seems like such a dry subject. And, you know, if you're a lawyer, you're kind of into it. Everybody else is kind of yawning and stuff. And, and then I'll get into a, 
a topic of, you know, we had uh, somebody sign this non-compete and we have these specific clauses in here for specific reasons. And then they did X and they broke that clause and we were able to go back to them. So you could take something as simple as a non-disclosure or non-competition uh, uh, document and give a, a live example of why that was important and why do you need to have that type of information in it. Uh, I've also used the cash flow example from our business in my teaching. So you asked a question earlier, right, about the grants and how fast do we grow and how many of these grants are we going to go after. You have to take a look at your cash flow because what is your payback period for spending money to get a customer? Right. What's your customer uh, acquisition cost? Right. CAC is one of those uh, terms entrepreneurs are supposed to know. Ours is fairly short. Uh, believe it or not, you know, we can get uh, a return back from a customer in seven months. Seven months, I think it's pretty good uh, for a physically intensive product like we Absolutely, offer. Yeah. It's pretty good. Well, think if you start to double your flow of customers, you're doubling that flow of money that you're spending seven months before you're breaking even. And the faster you grow, the more money you're spending. Now, eventually, if you look at the model, you know, eventually you're you're making money after a period of time. But for a couple of years, you're like spending money you know, hand over fist. And while it looks profitable on a spreadsheet, you know, you, you spend five dollars and you're making forty dollars. You, you net thirty five. We'll, we'll do a million of those. Right. Well, if you do a million of those, it's like, wait a minute, you don't get all of that upfront cost back so quickly. So I've actually laid out some spreadsheets where I show the uh, cash over time for what you're investing, the return you're getting. And then as you increase your speed, you actually lose more money in the short term, which which is uh, something that most people don't think about. I mean, you, you may think about that, you're uh, financially astute, but a lot of students don't think about that. They think, well... If you can make a 50% margin, you should try to do as many as you possibly can. Well, depends on the cash flow. Yeah. So uh, th that would be another example I've shared with the class on sometimes you have to manage that. Or how are you going to come up with that cash? Or e even something as mundane as in, in the physical world, you have to have a place to put this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Let's say you want to sell a thousand of XYZ. Are you going to have them on hand? How are you going to source them? What's your distribution? What's your warehousing? So it's, it's not as easy as just looking at a spreadsheet and saying, oh, well, you want to go as fast as you possibly can. Well, shoot. And I mean, over the course of the last couple of years, as you know, I mean, if you decided in 2021 that you wanted to go as fast as you could, so you went out and, or, you know, 2020, you wanted to grow as fast as you could, so you went out and raised $5 million and then um, you went as fast as you could and you burned through all that money and now you still need money because you're still, you know, losing on to build um, and raising money uh, in an equity stack these days is a little bit more difficult than it was back in 2020, 2021. So it's, you know, you, you can get caught in the trap really quick and, you know, focusing on profitability from day one Probably not. Probably it absolutely does limit your scalability and your growth, but it also it protects you in difficult times as well, right? So knowing what that knowing what that balance is as an entrepreneur is so important. Yeah, it's always always the balance. I, believe it or not, this afternoon, about an hour before we started this uh, uh, this podcast, I had a conversation internally with a couple of folks about how many grants we're going to be going after. 
and what our appetite is. You know, how much money are we going to put on the on the line? And uh, it's going to be a prioritization. And you know, how much resources do we have now? You know, the short answer for any entrepreneur is, oh, you go get more money yeah. or, or you get more resources. Let's do it all. Right. But in the end of the day, you can't do it all. You need to prioritize. You need to be smart about things. Not every opportunity is a good opportunity. So you got to think through it all. It ha- yeah. happens to us. We're constantly evaluating that. Yeah. No, what, what an awesome point. I mean, um, just because the word opportunity exists doesn't mean you should reach for it. Right. Right. So um, sometimes it's just a matter of knowing which opportunity is yours and which opportunity is not. I had a, a boss years ago tell me something that's always stuck with me is uh, sometimes the best decisions you make are not to do something. Yeah. And, and I know for an entrepreneur, that's kind of like opposite of what we all do. <laughs> you know, we're yeah. all like looking for opportunities and we're all like go getters and we're going to go get everything done. But sometimes you have to look at something and go, no, I'm not going to do that. Or I'm going to do it in a different way, or I'm going to let somebody else be the lead and I'll be a supporting player. Yeah. Uh, so th- then that's why we're looking at some partnership opportunities where maybe the best play for us is not to be that front end, but more of a partner. Yeah. So, well, y'all, um, A, you've been a phenomenal community contributor, um, you know, just through the support that you've given so many other entrepreneurs and so many um, entrepreneurial organizations here in Charlotte. And then it's been so awesome to watch y'all. I get all your updates and I, I guess the algorithm doesn't give me all of your updates on LinkedIn, but it gives me a fair number of your updates on LinkedIn. So it's been great to see y'all grow over the course of the last four or five years. So um, thanks for coming back on and, and sharing the story and talking a little bit about what those opportunities and challenges is so interesting to hear you talk about the um, almost the danger of the challenge or the danger of the opportunity that you have, right? Like, how do you, that's, um, so to hear you talk through that was really phenomenal today. So thanks so much for sharing, sharing with us today, Alan, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Oh, you're welcome. I'm definitely looking forward to uh, what lies ahead. I have to think of Andy Grove, who's the old CEO of Intel, if you remember that name, but one of his sayings was only the paranoid survive. <laughs> so you, you could be a startup founder. You could have a successful company, six, seven years, 10 years. But if you're not paranoid about what the future could hold or what changes are happening, you may not make it. So I, I'm still in this you know, paranoia world of something's going to change. I've got to make sure we're going to be the winner and take off the boxing gloves. Let's fight. Yeah, that's awesome. So, uh, well, hopefully I don't meet you any time soon in the ring. And um, hopefully I meet you at a place where we can have a a drink together, right? That sounds good. So anyway, so thanks so much, Alan. I appreciate it. Look forward to look forward to seeing you in the next couple months. Registration does not imply a certain level of skill or training. Opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Portis Wealth Advisors. 
The topics discussed and opinions given are not intended to address the specific needs of any listener. Portis Wealth Advisors does not offer legal or tax advice. Listeners are encouraged to discuss their financial needs with the appropriate professional regarding your individual circumstance. Investments described herein may be speculative and may involve a substantial risk of loss. Interest may be offered only to persons who qualified as accredited investors under applicable state and federal regulation or an eligible employee of the management company. There generally is no public market for the interest. Prospective investors should particularly note that many factors affect performance, including changes in the market conditions and interest rates, and other economic, political, or financial developments. Past performance is not and should not be construed as indicative of future results.